the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Psalm chapter 19, verse 14. Well, it is great to be back with you on the 35th edition of Living a Whole Christian Life. This is Dr. Jim Schrader, and what a privilege it has been to spend with you all these weeks, these months, as we go through this framework and this foundation of a whole Christian life. And as we've entered into the rooms of our home, we spent some time over the last few weeks, a number of weeks, in the physical dimension, in the physical rooms of our home. But this week, we are now headed towards the social dimension as we continue to round off, what does this home look like? What does this whole Christian life look like? And so as we start off the social dimension, I really think that it's important to consider just how incredibly social beings we are programmed to be. One of the things I think I mentioned very early in the podcast is that before a child is ever born, even at six months gestation, they already are, the social being in this child is emerging in the sense that they, he or she, soothe differently to the sound of the voice of their mother than anybody else around them, which is such an astounding thing to think about. Before you ever see your child, they're developing in a social, intimate, connected way. But as we go further and we consider after children are born, you know, I think that as a psychologist especially, it's really astounding to see the social development emerge. There are definitely things that we teach our kids throughout life about how to act and what's normative and what's appropriate and what's respectful. But as a psychologist, you're especially engendered in the idea that so much develops during different sensitive periods throughout our lives that we really have very little to do with. And so I wanted to take you through a little bit of this early on to really give you a sense of the way God's design creates this incredible, incredible social dimension in our lives. So by the age of two months, you know, the average child starts to smile and look directly at those around them. Again, as all these things I'm going to describe, so many of them have nothing to do with what we instruct directly, but they develop often naturally. By the age of six months, children begin to respond differently to others' emotions, and they can feel that emotion. And they often respond by crying or smiling or laughing. You can often see a six-month-old child, even before he or she can walk, and just start sitting up, they've already started to emerge in a very, very social way. By 12 months of age, even with just minimal language for most kids, they have become very intricate social beings. They have learned how to use their eye contact in ways that describe different emotions. They've learned how to get what we call referencing from adults around them, how to get feedback from adults without, again, saying or understanding most words. You know, they've learned how to respond to different people in different ways. They already start to develop favorites around them. So there's so much there, even before language develops, they're remarkable how social kids are. But as we go on further and you look at even language development, between the 18 months and 23 months, the average child has already developed about 50 words. But by the time you get to the age of three, that has really exploded. And the average three-year-old understands and uses anywhere from 300 to 500 words. As we go beyond the age of three and we hit third grade, an average, a typical third grader knows 10,000 words. By eighth grade, that number has risen to 25,000. And the average high school graduate understands and knows about 50,000 words. 
And that's just the beginning. Here's what's remarkable about the social development of us as beings. And, you know, you think about all the other organisms on this planet. Of course, nobody's as as intricate as we are. But, you know, we talk a lot about language, but the reality is that there's even more communication, even more interaction that occurs in the nonverbal development, again, from a very early age. And I think that, you know, again, being a psychologist, actually being someone who specialized in the area of autism spectrum over the last 15 to 20 years, I start to recognize just how amazingly intricate and detailed this nonverbal world is. And I want to give you kind of a perspective on this. There is what we call uh, the MCHAT. The MCHAT is probably the most widely researched screening device in the world when it comes to early signs of autism spectrum. The MCHAT was developed for kids from 18 months to 30 months, and it's 23 yes or no items that parents answer. It usually takes just a few minutes to kind of fill out. What's amazing about the MCHAT and when they fill it out is that almost nothing has to do with language. It has to do with all sorts of things like imitation or response to name or interest in other children or use of gestures. It has to do with even like the typical like aspects of play. Many, many different things that we see with regards to social development that again have nothing to do with what the words that are being said. And I actually want to give you a really interesting piece here. Again, only a psychologist can really probably be so fascinated, but I think that we all should consider just amazing how much this is amazing here when it comes to the world of pointing. So most of you probably don't know that it's about 10 to 12 months when a young child starts to figure out that when you as a parent or caregiver, whoever you are, point at something, that that finger isn't just a finger, but that forefinger, again, that we're very specific often to the forefinger itself, that forefinger is a symbol to an invisible line that leads somewhere else. And so it's about 10 to 12 months without any instruction, of course, from parents that kids begin to follow that point into the line of infinity until it reaches something of interest, right? Something that we are pointing at, that that they should look at. And then about 12 to 14 months, most children typically develop what's called proto-imperative pointing. And they, in essence, say to themselves, of course, not consciously, but unconsciously, well, if you can use the point, I can use the point. And so proto-imperative pointing is the idea of pointing for need. If they want food, they learn that that finger can be really helpful to get food. If they see something, you know, a toy or whatever, they learn that that finger can help them get that toy. And if that wasn't enough, then the final stage of development when it comes to pointing is after the age of 14 months on average, the kids start to see that, you know what? I don't just have to, I I can just point for more than just need. I can develop what's called proto-declarative pointing, which is pointing for interest. And this is where pointing takes on the ultimate social function because no longer are they necessarily worried about where you're pointing at, although of course they can do it, or even just pointing for need. Now they're pointing what we would say for interest. So suddenly the bird flies by and they're pointing out, you know, in the environment, they see the bird and and that point, that finger comes out. Or again, they see something in the distance that they're really curious about and they're pointing at it. And while they're pointing, most kids are looking back or they want you to see what they're pointing at. Because at that point, (laughs) no pun intended, the pointing becomes a very, very social function. And so this is what we see from an early age is that God has wired us to be social beings. And I think that being in the world of autism spectrum, what it taught me, one, just the incredible, like I said, the intricacy, the complexity to our social world, 
But I think that in, you know, working with those children who struggle in the social world at various levels, um, it's taught me what a gift it is and how much that, you know, it's so important to pay attention to how we take the gifts that God gives us, no matter what it is, and utilize them in a social way for his kingdom and for our calling. And I think that's what's really important as we start off this idea is that, you know, many of you out there may be saying, well, look, I mean, is this just about those who are outgoing because I'm introverted, you know? Or you may say, again, I have a child who's on the autism spectrum. I mean, what does this mean for him or her? And I think that here's the, the beauty of where we're going is that no matter if you are a nonverbal adult or you're the most gifted orator in the world, the principles by which we're laid out in the Bible, the principles by which we really operate through God's design, ask us of one thing. It says, okay, by the way, you're on a continuum of the social abilities. And here's, it's actually fascinating to look at the research behind this because just like intelligence, just like attention in other areas, what we have found is social abilities are spread across kind of a bell curve, a continuum. And so there are those who are, you know, kind of gifted in the social world all the way down to those who are more average and then those who struggle at some level, whether it's even diagnosable or not. But the beauty of this and beauty of where we're going with this podcast is that you can be introverted or extroverted. You can be extremely verbal or just say very little. You can do lots of different things in the social domain, and yet these principles remain very true. And so that's kind of the, the neat thing about where we're going here and just the overall idea is that sometimes people get caught up in personality and the temperament and everything else. And I think that it's hard to kind of understand how this social dimension applies across the board. But when you get deeper into it, again, you look at the fact that there are so many variables and so many ways that we can express ourselves as God would design us, then you start becoming less you know, disenchanted or less jaded by the differences and you start to recognize the similarities and the beauty of this social dimension that God gives us, which really brings us to, I think, a key piece here. And I think you would consider the most famous social Bible verse of all time, which we often call the golden rule. It's Matthew 7, 12, quote, do to others whatever you would have them do to you. This is the law and the prophets, end quote. You know, over the years, I've heard a lot of people actually speak to this. Of course, this is probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible itself. And, you know, I think all of you listening, if you've been in any Christian church for some time, um, you've heard homily after homily um, or lecture series about this idea. Um, even if you haven't been in Christian churches and, you know, you're in the, in the workplace or in many different places, I think that this is one of those things that has kind of gone beyond our Christian faith. But have you ever really wondered how do we operationalize what is said there? Now, listen again. Do to others whatever you would have them do to you. This is the law and the prophets. When you think about that verse for a second, the question is, where exactly do we go with that verse? What is that verse really telling us when we operationalize it to our daily life? What does it inform us about our style of communication with people? What does it inform us about the ways that we treat each other and in, in throughout the day, and not in just situations of potential conflict, but even in just little situations and little things that we do. And so in the coming podcast, we're really going to dive into this idea. The sense is, again, let the words of my mouth and the medita meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer, as we said at the beginning from Psalm 1914. But in doing so, 
Do to others whatever you would have them do to you. This is the law and the prophets. I mean, that's a huge statement to say this is the entire law in many ways and what the prophets have been saying. It puts a a real premium on our social world. It puts a real premium on what we do and our capacity to really understand this world. I think that you don't have to be a psychologist to recognize the gravity of that statement, but I think in being a psychologist and working with those who struggle from the social side, it really behooves us to understand more deeply how do we boil that down to every day. And so as we think about this and as we go forward, you know, one of the things that's really important to consider is that there is really three beginning components to this idea of the golden rule. You really have to start with three beginning components. The first is, if you're going to do unto others as you would have them do to you, how do you even know how that relates from one to the other if you don't have empathy? And I think that's the beginning place, is that we simply can't understand how to relate to others and and how to do unto them unless we really try to understand them better, unless we really try to understand what they're about and the context of their lives and their struggles. And again, there's no way you can ever be another person. I think one of the biggest mistakes we can say is that, oh, I know where you're coming from. I I know what you've been through. No, you don't. You don't know that. There's no way you can know that. But can you make an attempt to be able to listen and understand the context of their lives in a way that at least informs their decision? We surely can. So we're back to the whole thing again. Can we guarantee the outcome of empathy? Certainly not. Can we guarantee the effort of empathy, the effort taken to really understand another human being? Well, we certainly can. And so that's one of the great things. I think that when we start off here, the idea is that we have to strive to empathize with another person. We have to strive to truly put ourselves in their shoes, even though we will never fully understand what it's like to be them. But then once we strive to do that, I think the second part is probably the most difficult of all. And not that we are blindsided and not that we aren't like self-absorbed in ways to keep us from being empathetic. But the second key is that we have to have responsiveness. We have to be responsive once we empathize with that person. It's great to have all the empathy in the world, but if you have no responsivity at all to what you see that person may be struggling with or what the context of their lives teaches you, well, then in some ways, I mean, it's kind of like... We're just devoid of, I don't know, our Christian works, right? That our faith should have works as well as our empathy should have responsiveness. Otherwise, it's kind of empty. And so it's one without the other. But the second key to really going forward in the social dimension is a sense of true responsivity. Now, again, responsiveness does not mean we agree with what they're doing or we necessarily think that just because they need or want something, that's that's automatically what we should give them. But responsiveness is a deep discernment about, again, one, understanding that person and their context, but two, understanding what God calls us through virtuous responding, through virtuous discernment to do in these situations. And then sometimes it might be a sort of tough love. It may not be exactly what they're even wanting or what they're wanting at all. But the key with responsiveness is that it's the combination of empathy or striving for empathy in combination with the idea of discerning what's God asking of us in this situation. Where is the virtue in the situation? Where's the courage? Where are the things that I'm supposed to be striving for? 
And it would be easy to stop there and say, okay, so if we're really going to start off with the framework of the social dimension, we've got empathy and we've got responsiveness. But as Jesus taught us throughout the Bible, if you stop there, you're stopping short. You're stopping before we really should stop at all because there's a third piece, which means that it's great to have empathy. It's great to be responsive. But what if you don't go any further and you keep making the same social errors over and over again? I know that we all do this to some extent. We're all, again, just like living a whole Christian life. We're never going to be completely whole in our whole lives and in certainly not in our social lives before we leave this world. But the third piece that we really have to go after is that once we've had empathy and once we've been responsive, the third piece is we have to reflect and see how it may help us grow and consider that what we do to others may have as much to do with ourselves as it may have to do with them. You know, have you ever really thought about that? Again, let's listen to Matthew here. Do to others whatever you would have them do to you. This is the law and the prophets. But turn that around, and the sense is, is that what you do to others really does then impact you or should impact you so that you grow in wisdom. You grow in your own holiness with a WH. And if we don't use that opportunity in our social interactions to grow ourselves, then we've really dropped the third critical piece here. So as we go forward with this dimension, I really feel it's a privilege that you've joined me on this journey. And we're going to talk about a lot of specific areas and a lot of specific ways that I think this applies to our whole Christian life. Consider, you know, going forward, empathy, responsiveness, and personal reflection and growth. And as was said, let those words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Because in the end of the day, although the social world is so much about the other person, it's actually much more about us and God. Be holy, be holy. This is Jim Schrader, and I hope you have a great day.